Welcome to Living the Dream Acting the Podcast. A podcast for actors, by actors, about acting. And here's the host, Christina Kipper Halstead. Hi, I'm Christina, and on this podcast, I track down interviews with actors, writers, directors, and everyone involved in the performing arts from stage to screen, including artists like myself who live outside of New York and L.A., where the rules of the business can sometimes be a little different. I cover getting started, not giving up, and inspiration for actors all around the globe who are trying to live their artistic dreams. On today's episode, we head to San Francisco for part two of my conversation with actor and teacher Scott Coopwood. Please stick around for that while we do a little catching up. I'm going to keep this check-in short and sweet this time around. Um, I've had a lot of personal um, personal challenges the last couple of weeks. Uh, Number one, my car completely broke down, and uh, I'm actually bussing it right now, so that's been fun, uh, but I'm just uh, pretending I'm back in New York and uh, taking public transportation as a regular means of travel and trying to look at it in a positive way, how um, I'm contributing to uh, less um, destruction of the planet. And, um, actually I had, uh, uh, loss in my family. Uh, my uncle passed away. So I've had some things come up that I had to, um, to take care of that caused an interruption in the timeline for getting the podcast out. And the last few weeks helped me put a lot of things into perspective about what's important. Um, during that time, my son also came back from, his traveling with his dad and it's been so great to be with him again. And then he started school. So there was that kind of hectic bit as well. And, uh, just, uh, it's all important. You know, my, um, my acting career is important and I've really, I've really had some infusion of passion around setting goals and accomplishing, a degree of, um, achievement in that area. And also just, um, that people in my life are really important. And if it's not for them, then everything else is meaningless. So, so anyway, um, I also want to keep this short and sweet because I want to get, uh, right into the interview with Scott Coopwood. We really get to hear even more about his passion for Shakespeare and the company that he's created with his um, business partner, Shakespeareance, that works with kids in school, bringing Shakespeare and stage combat and uh, the love of the bard to children. So I hope you enjoy it, and let's jump right in. So how did you make that transition? So you're, you you don't regret going to college, right? You're you're still glad you did that? Oh, or? oh yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I think that what happened there was, you know, um, 
the, the drama department at the university at the time, and I'm not, you know, I can say what I want because all those people are gone now. <laughs> you know, um, it was just, it was kind of a closed shop, and it, the people at the top of the department, it seemed to me, were very much um, set in their ways of what they were trying to create and the people that they uh, that they had in their stable and. Um, it felt like, you know, it's a lot like the real world. It was interesting because it, it, it prepared me more for the real world um, than if I had gone and been a real success story in, in my college experience. If I had gotten all the leads and played all these great parts. And um, and I and I know there was two people specifically, ironically enough, that, that were like, they were triple threats. Really, 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 you know, good. And people that I liked very much. One was an undergrad uh, who was two years older than me and uh, graduated, you know, I stayed an extra year. I couldn't get out of college either. And I stayed. And, and then there was a graduate student that I ran into like the first week I was in New York. And um, I was sitting on the library steps and, and uh, um, I was having lunch. I was working at a temp job at a, at a law office. So wait, let me, let me stop you for a second. How did you get from school in Arizona to New York? How did, what was that? Why did you choose that? How did you get there? Well, okay, well, I, 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 I went... Um, did that just seem like I, that was what you were well, supposed to do? As I said, I was, you know, I was uh, discouraged from um, pursuing this as a, a profession, um, at, least, at least on the stage. Mm -hmm. um, and so there were a few other people at that time, people that were my peers, people that were really my tribe, that um, had kind of gotten the same information, and we decided to start our own theater. And we started a theater in Tucson that um, was uh, that ended up running full time year round. Uh, uh, it had to produce year round. It couldn't take you know it couldn't it couldn't go dark for a period because the revenue stream and and we produced um you know so much of we did sam shepherd and edward albee and beckett and pinter and you know all of the stuff that nobody nobody at arizona theater company was going to do and nobody at my university none of the that stuff that that we just were like sinking our teeth into all that absurdist and that dark and that that crazy that real drama um so we started a theater and it was called aka theater in tucson um and it was there for like 13 years um and uh it was frowned upon by the university community and then within a few years people were allowed to come over and get intern credits for working over there um uh, it was on congress street downtown and it was like i said it was there for a number of years and i was very very proud of it but eventually I outgrew it and I felt like I needed to do something else. And I got a call from a buddy of mine who was part of that process, who had gone uh, and who was working as the technical director and the master carpenter. But Steve was a, a brilliant playwright and he had, he had so many more skills. But I met him at the U of A as well. He called me up and he said, I want to start a summer stock in Vermont. Uh, I've got uh, a space and I want some crazy people to come spend a summer with me and see if we can make this thing fly. And I jumped at the opportunity. It was right after I graduated. Um, I got in a car with one other girl from Tucson, um, and we drove across country, and we went to Vermont, and Steve had procured housing in a, a, a winter, essentially what was a ski resort, and there were chalets, you know. But in the summer, they weren't really being utilized, and he could get them cheap. So he pulled off some kind of a deal. We all were housed. We had two, two like, um, 
big uh, like ski rental places. There was the company was about 15 people. We shared two big houses, um, and we had communal meals, and we did uh, verse, we did a much ado about nothing. We did three shows that season, and we did them in an old church. Uh, in the center of this tiny, tiny town in, called Montgomery, Vermont, which is about an hour south of Montreal, way up near the border. Uh, and I had a wonderful, <laughs> crazy, alcohol-fueled, like, you know, post-college, I'm, I'm a, you know, a renegade artist, like, you know, the, a merry prankster from Oregon running around, you know, uh, drinking Genesee cream ale and making art. And after the summer was over and we got the kind of the, the theater kind of off the ground, um, I, uh, I went and I moved to Brooklyn because I had a friend that was living in New York City. So I moved from Vermont. I didn't know what I was going to do. Was I going to go back to Tucson? What was I going to do? I didn't want to go back to Tucson. I wanted, now I was out in the world. I had my, my degree, but I didn't want to go to grad school. And, and back then it wasn't, it wasn't as important as it is now. It wasn't held up in the same way I wanted to go to work. So I went to New York and I was bound and determined to get a job because I landed there with a hundred bucks and I got a temp job working at that law office that I mentioned. And then I went on an audition like my second day, um, for, with an improv troupe and I got, a, I got an offer. So, cause I was really, really, really worried about being afraid. Um, and this doubles back to my story at the library. I, I, I ran into, one of my friends from college and I asked about these two guys that had moved to New York that were like super triple threat, heavy, heavy hitters. And I asked, Hey, what happened to so-and-so? What happened to so-and-so? And, um, they had been in New York for multiple years now. And one was selling shoes and one was, one was doing some other kind of like just clerical work and they hadn't been to an audition. Um, they had been, they were the darlings of the department that I was in and they had had everything handed to them. And they were scared to death and they weren't ready for the rejection and they were fearful. And as far as I know, neither one of them, uh, ever, as far as I know, um, neither one of them had ever gone, had ever really ever tried again. And, um, it was, that was really depressing to me. Um, but then I looked back at my experience and I realized that, you know, them telling me I couldn't do it and, and, and myself and my friends going, well, watch us and we'll start a theater and we'll compete with you. Um, that made me, you know, it just built a fire, uh, and, 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 and steel is forged in fire and it made me stronger and stronger and stronger. And, you know, every time there was a little road bump or anytime somebody closed the door, I just, um, found another way because that's the only, it's the only way I knew how to behave. Um, because I've been told no so many times from the, even the time that I was a little kid going back to my childhood, you can't do this. You can't do this. Why don't you do this? You know, um, this is just a hobby. You should join the military. What are you doing with your life? You know, your grades are whatever. You're not living up to your potential, whatever. I mean, every time there was one of those things, um, there was a, Oh yeah. All right. Watch this. Um, so I think, um, had my circumstances been different, I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't think I would have evolved the way I did and probably wouldn't have had the success that I've had because I've just willed it to be so. I mean, I have talent. Um, yes, you and do. I learned that. There's no, there's no question, but, um, yeah. I have a, I think the will is even, 
is even greater because I know a lot of people with talent who gave up a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, and that that fearless spirit. I mean, yeah, I just love that. I can feel that so clearly. Um, uh, so so let's talk about Shakespeare. So that's the that's the way that we met. Um, I took a workshop right. from you here in Sedona, Arizona, and um, it was sort of the adult version of and mini version maybe of the Shakespeareans. Uh, program that yeah. you do with kids. I think I had said to you uh, that day or that second day that uh, I, I think I learned more about Shakespeare in those two days than I did in the whole time I was in college. Yeah. And when just being in the room with you, talking about Shakespeare, reading Shakespeare, working us through Shakespeare, I, I was like, I have to read every play now. Like, like your, pa <laughs> your passion just was spilling out everywhere. So, um, and so how did that, I mean, that's a whole separate thing. How did you fall in love with Shakespeare? And now you've done 22 of his plays, um, live yeah. and, uh, how did that happen, and, and what do you think um, spoke to you so strongly about that? You know, that, I, uh, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, because I, I think, I think uh, going all the way back to when I was talking about that freshman class, poor Mr. Boswell, I love that guy to death. I mean, I, you know, I, I still think about him and, and, and what he did for me in, in that time where I was so lost and felt so alone. And I, like I said, I think he knew it. Um, but he couldn't, God save him, couldn't get Romeo and Juliet off the page, and I hated it. I hated it. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do with it, and I was terrified. You know, junior year we did do, I, I think there was one year we didn't do, but what, it, it never resonated with me until I, be, I was a senior, and I had a, another, again, it was an English teacher, Mr. Kuhlman, who who had the kind of passion that uh, I think to a degree that, that I exhibit about it. And it was my first kind of taste of, we were doing Lear, senior year in high school, because uh, it was advanced, like AP English, and um, I, he was so enthusiastic about it. But even more than his enthusiasm, or or maybe the enthusiasm coupled with the fact that he could get it to come off the page, that we read it out loud and we uh, we broke it down. We took the time. It wasn't. We weren't reading it because it was uh, part of the curriculum that was forced upon us. He was really passionate about it. And so King Lear came to life for me a little bit that that senior in high school. But King Lear is not a story that a 16-year-old high school mm -hmm. senior is going to relate to. Right. Uh, like, like Macbeth is, or like Romeo and Juliet is, or like Hamlet is. But he was passionate about Lear, and that's what AP English senior year, and that's <laughs> what we did. But I got a little bit of a taste of, okay... This is not a museum piece. It's not to be held under glass. Um, and I wasn't an actor yet, so I didn't understand that it was a script, that it was alive, that it was something to be spoken, not read, and that it was malleable, and that each individual voice within it makes it right. There is no right or wrong. I tell my kids all the time, um, their, their Hamlet's not going to be mine, and the person next to them's Mercutio is not going to be theirs because their individual voice is unique in those words. Um, and those stories are so resonant even today. I mean, this is a guy that had more, and I've said this to you in the workshop, you know, a greater impact on Western culture and the English language than anybody else that ever walked on the earth. And, and when you get, when you can get it off the page and start to understand the story, you know, then the problem with the language becomes not a problem, but a challenge. And it becomes an exciting challenge. Um, uh, and you realize that it's 
you know, we don't speak and write in metaphor anymore. And that's all it is. You know, when, when, when we go back to the basic storytelling and all he had was words and he had a daylight theater and he had an audience that was selling chickens and buying goats and growing tomatoes and, and preening and primping and there were fights in the audience. You know, he had to find a way to, to, to create story that was bigger than life. Um, and to do it only with language. So the metaphor is what makes it sing. And when you start to wrap your, when you start to go, when you start to think and, 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 and accept the metaphor, it flows over you like beautiful jazz music. If, if you slow it down, um, too much, if you start to try and find the meaning of every sentence, you'll get lost. But if you let the metaphors float across you, like jazz music, um, then it affects you at a cellular level. I think then it speaks to your soul. So freshman year of college, uh, not freshman year, junior year, I didn't get on stage freshman, sophomore year of college at all. And, and like I said, it was a frustrating time. And, and, um, and then, and I never got on stage with one of the directors from the university. It was always a guest director. Um, and there was a guest director that came out, um, and he ended up directing my first equity show, actually, too. Um, but he was directing a production of uh, Romeo and Juliet. And, I, of course, I wanted to play Romeo because I, I wanted to get the girl. Right, I wanted to be of Romeo. course. And, you know? Um, but my buddy Michael got Romeo, and Walter cast me as Mercutio. And um, that kind of lit the fire and changed the ballgame for me because that character... You know, I mean, he's he's Mercury, he's Mercurial, and he's ever changing, and um, and he fit me, and that's why Walter cast me. I didn't see it at the time, but uh, and um, I I fell in love with it. I had the best time, and you know, I got to learn stage combat. It was my first taste of sword fighting. You know, rapier and dagger, mm -hmm. and um, love that. That's class. I. Mm -hmm. You know, I got to you know. We used blood. It was a very bloody production. It was really, really fun. But I, but he made the experience of now becoming an actor inside that world and speaking those words and then speaking those words to an audience so that an audience has the same experience. So it's not just me having fun, but they get you too. They get to hear the story and they get to, they get the empathy. Uh, we get to share that moment. And there is no fourth wall in Shakespeare, which is the thing that's really, really cool. And, and the thing that I think brings me back to it again and again is because there isn't a fourth wall. You know, there's a fourth wall in, in virtually every other, and obviously Brecht aside and, and some of the other theater of, of going back to, you know, um, Thomas Kidd and things like that. And there's, there's people who have broken the wall, but generally there's a fourth wall and we're looking in, we're spies. But with Shakespeare, we're invited in. We're invited to be, if not on the stage, as close as possible. And we speak the text directly to the audience. And we try and reach out and we try and grab them. And that's what Shakespeare had to do in his time, to keep his audience there. Um, and uh, that is a very attractive thing. Some actors shy away from it because it's not natural. But I gravitate toward it. I, I love uh, I love the interaction with the audience. And not a gratuitous interaction, but an interaction that allows that allows you, for example, you know, I mean, all, Hamlet's major speeches, they need, he's, he's alone in that world, and he goes to the audience for help. Um, Macbeth does the same thing until he abandons the audience and 
trusts only the witches and then his own demise. And Richard III does the same thing. He speaks to the audience. Iago does the same thing. I am the villain of the piece, and you're going to go along for the ride, and you're going to enjoy everything that I do. And until finally, you know, and they always they always bail on the audience when it gets when it gets to when they bail on the audience. That's when their demise begins. Ironically enough, if you'll note um, when you read the great tragedies. Um, but uh, so for me, um, it just it just kind of fell in my lap, and um, I started getting jobs. Um, you know, uh, where if I worked in the course of a year. And I did four other or five other, you know, eight, let's say, let's say three jobs doing Born Yesterday and All My Sons and Lobby Hero. And then I'd go do a summer where I did four Shakespeare's. So I was working about 50-50 and I got, all of a sudden I started doing, you know, I, um, I went from, you know, Hamlet, Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, Hamlet, Much Ado About Nothing. Macbeth, Much Ado About Nothing, Merchant of Venice, King Lee. I just went on this roll of like, and playing all the major, all the great roles. And, and I just, it was this nonstop track of, especially in summers, because I was working at Utah, or I was working at Orlando, or I was working at Marin. And so I would get three Shakespeare's in a row. I just got immersed. It would be an immersion in it. Um, and then I would go out and do some contemporary stuff. But after Shakespeare in Love was so successful, um, the, there was a real kind of a, 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 a handshake with Shakespeare again in this country and the Shakespeare festivals kind of had a rebirth and the interest in Shakespeare kind of took off again and uh, regional theaters uh, were putting Shakespeare into their regular programming and uh, um, so there was just more opportunity to do it and I got better at it and better at it and every time I did it I wanted to know more and you know, I get to work with somebody who, who was uh, uh, not just a peer of mine, but somebody who had more experience. And every time I got that opportunity to pick a brain about a role, about a play, about an experience, um, I would do that. And I've been really blessed to work with some people. Um, I, you know, I just worked with Barry Kraft again, who's a dramaturg at Ashland. He retired as an actor, uh, but the last show that he did before he, was, he retired was King John. And he played the King of France, and I played John. And that was a remarkable experience to share a dressing room with him and to talk to him backstage and pick his brain about stuff. And then my friend, um, Julian, uh, Lopez Marias is the other person that I know who started out at Berkeley Shakes back in the day and then Cal Shakes and then was at Ashland. He's actually done the entire canon, uh, like a time and a half. And, um, he, he's one of those people that if you give him a line, he can tell you the character, the play, the act, the scene. He's like an encyclopedia of knowledge, and so every chance I get to pick a brain, and now over time, for younger people, I become the brain that they pick about mm -hmm. the stuff, and so I'm I'm passing on the you know I'm the wise old sage oftentimes, and like with this last production of Macbeth, I mean I think I knew the play, no all you know ego aside, um, the director was coming at it for the first time, the two lead actors were coming at it for the first time, obviously having read it, but. Um, you know, it was my sixth time doing it in production, and so I have an intimate knowledge of the play. And to watch it being rehearsed and being and and and, and having a microscope on it, because the people that were 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 manning the ship had never done it before. Watching them work out the problems, I learned stuff that I didn't even know about it. It was like 
mining. Uh, it was like mining for gold where I thought the gold was gone and there was new gold again. It was mm. a remarkable experience. Wow. Um, I, I learned a lot. I had a great, I had a, I had a great time and, uh, I know the play even better now. And, um, that's the beauty of, of, of his work is there's always something more to glean. Um, every time I read it, every time I speak it, every time I teach it, and every time I have a kid do it, a, a student, whether they're fourth grade, I'm going to teach sword fighting, I'm going to teach some Mac <laughs> fights tomorrow, uh, I'm going to learn something from those kids. And they're going to learn something from me, but I'm going to learn something from them when I hear them. I'm like, um, and then I end up stealing it because like, I never thought of that line that way. And I have that with sixth, seventh, eighth graders, high school kids. I hear it new for the first time so often. It's remarkable. That's great. That's fantastic. <laughs> so talk yeah. about that program a little bit. Share with people what that's about and and where you're doing um, it. Well, we're just a little over three years old. Um, our birthday was tax day, April 15th. <laughs> and uh, we're called Shakespeareans. And um, when my 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 partner and myself got together. We were both, she, we were both, she was acting still and we were just looking. She's a single mom. She has a couple of kids. Um, and we had just come off doing midsummer together and, um, and we were dating at the time and, um, we were just looking for a way to make a little extra money on the after day off, which is Monday. And, you know, we both have some stage combat experience. We both have an intimate knowledge with Shakespeare and his work. And, um, you know, and we thought, well, what if we offered, you know, literally just to make a few extra bucks, uh, on a Monday afternoon, what if we offered, you know, uh, uh, you know, some sword fighting, a class and incorporated some scenes. And so we titled it swords, scenes and soliloquies. And we rented a space, uh, just the two of us, we just rented the space and I went to Home Depot and I got some dowels and I got some gaff tape and I made some swords. Um, and the first time we went around, we got seven kids, um, her youngest and both of her boys were in that first one. And then a few of their friends, uh, the parents thought that'd be cool. I think we had seven or eight. We did it over six weeks. Um, and it was fun and we made a little money and we thought, well, let's try it again. And and every time we did, we offered it, we got a couple more kids. And then, um, we, uh, Steve was teaching at a school in the city and we thought, well, is it possible to, is, would it be possible to create a, like a, a, a business out of this to be our own? Cause we were teaching for other people. We were both teaching for either the Marin Shakespeare company or California Shakespeare theater or San Francisco shakes. And we're always um, two teachers that were in high regard and high demand. But I got let in on an email thread uh, accidentally where I realized what my services were being paid for and what I was being paid for my services. And I thought, is there a way to cut out the middleman? Is there a way uh, for us to go into the schools for us to offer this, not step on toes, not take anybody's business. We don't want to alienate anybody. We all want all boats rise. Is there a way, though, to offer this at places where these other people aren't working and maybe carve out a niche uh, here in Marin County or over in Alameda County, uh, you know, Berkeley and Oakland uh, in the city in San Francisco, not schools that SF Shakes is servicing, but other schools? Um, and she had been teaching at a private parochial school, so we, we immediately put that as part of the program. She moved over to a school in Berkeley. Then we interviewed at a school in Mill Valley that offers Shakespeare to every single seventh grader. 
And that's remarkable. It doesn't, you know, to have that uh, being offered, um, especially um, to a middle school, but it was a something, it was money that had been left in trust uh, decades ago. And it was, that was the terms of the trust was that this program, you know, that every seventh grader is going to get Shakespeare. And the teachers at the time, and this is again now four years ago, um, were kind of bored with what they were doing. They were doing um, uh, a 40 minute version of Midsummer. And um, Midsummer is a fine play, uh, but there's so many that are better. And there's, a, I think, a better way to expose kids to, um, to, to take a broader brush and to use and to paint with history and literature and the poetry and the math behind the poetry and, and, and the, uh, the historical context and the language and the invention of language. And, and if you, if you, if you use more plays, there's gotta be a better way to give the kids more than just, I played a fairy when I was in seventh grade. So nobody's playing fairies anymore in the seventh grade over there. Uh, um, we created a, a, a script that we call Willpower. Um, Willpower or the power of will. <laughs> nice. Uh, you, get, you get the joke, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the kids get it, and they always roll their eyes when I do it like that because <laughs> for some reason I sense a humor in the seventh grade mind. They just – anyway. Yeah. So it's – we use we, – we, we, we tailor it to the classroom, to the teacher – um, to their classes. Uh, we have about 200 students every year now, and it's a 55-minute um, performance-based piece, but we pull scenes from Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, um, uh, Much Ado About Nothing, Macbeth. We've used scenes from Richard III, Henry IV, Part One, Merchant of Venice. We've used that as kind of the through line, depending on what the teachers are looking for that year. And the teachers do the prep, and the kids get like a real history lesson they also, like I said, they get a context for this guy and for his stories. And, um, and so we tie the scenes together with a, the through line, the theme of willpower and, 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 and who has the power and what does it mean to have power. And, um, and it empowers those students and they get on their feet and they, so they do a show. There's a performance component. But a lot of the time is spent in the classroom, and then and then we get out, we start rehearsing, and we get 15 hours with every child. So we've done that, and we've continued our after-school programs, um, and they've grown and grown and grown and grown. So we we have them now on Mondays and on Sundays. So Sunday is technically not after school. We have a what we call an advanced Shakespeare acting lab, where we don't even do fight scenes anymore. We don't, you know, we have kids that now just want to act more, that want to just dig into the language, that want to understand how the verse works. Uh, more along the lines of the workshop I did with you guys in Sedona um, with really understanding. And we're talking about these kids are 13, 14, 15, and they are hungry to understand how to bring this language off the page, um, and they want to speak the speech. Um, and uh, we don't have to encourage them to memorize. I mean, they, they want more. And so we do that on Sunday evenings. And then on Mondays, we do our after school, which is kind of an introductory thing with the kids we meet around the community. And we, we do sword fighting and scenes with them and soliloquy work with them. And some of them audition for places and we help them with that and we get them ready. But we're, we're not about creating actors. We're about um, empowering students and giving them a voice. We just use Shakespeare's words um, for them to hook into and, and for them to use their voice around. But it, we're giving them a voice. We're giving them self-esteem. And we just know Shakespeare so well that that's the instrument we use. Great. 
That's so great. So now we're in four. Now we're in four counties. We're three years and two months old, and we're we're a nonprofit. So if anybody wants to donate, we are a five hundred one c three not for profit uh, organization education program. We have a Facebook page, a Twitter account, and an Instagram page. That's the end of episode 12 featuring Scott Coopwood. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll post the website, Twitter, and Instagram links for Shakespeareans in the show notes for this episode. Scott was very generous with his time, so our next episode will feature part three of my conversation with Coop. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes so you get the latest episodes delivered right to you. You can also find us on Podbean and Stitcher. And now, my special assistant will lead us out. Please join the community by liking us on Facebook, by leaving a comment on my mom's website, livingthedreamacting.com, by following them on my Twitter at artistdreams. That's at artist underscore dreams. I'm Alexander Shays Halstead. And I'm Christina Kipper. And, and thanks, thanks again, again for, for listening. listening. Thank you for listening to Living the Dream Acting, the podcast. Have questions or a story you'd like to share? We'd love to hear from you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit our website at livingthedreamacting.com.